From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to the big event in our Mark Benioff episode. I first heard the words Mark Benioff about 20 years before Benioff and Salesforce became household names in San Francisco. My father was a math teacher at Burlingame High, where Benioff in the 1980s was a so-so math student with an incredible interest in computers. He was basically the IT for the math department, fixing their computer, writing programs. By graduation, he had started his own business and sold computers to two of his teachers. But the Benioff story in 2019 goes beyond business success and technology into the importance of values and civic engagement. That's a theme running through his new book, Trailblazer, and it's also the story of Benioff's grandfather, Marvin Lewis. Lewis was a San Francisco supervisor in the 1940s and 1950s and a trial lawyer in the city. Based on what I found in the archive, Lewis also had a huge influence on Benioff's philanthropic spirit. When Benioff championed the Prop C homeless measure last year, it came about 65 years after Lewis had his own fight against City Hall, crusading to help the homeless. Here's Benioff talking about what modern CEOs can learn from Marvin Lewis, Cyril Magnin, and other business leaders from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. But I'll tell you the thing that was interesting about him is that when you look at somebody like that, and it wasn't just him, that a local leader was somebody who had their career, but also had their civic interests, their spiritual interests, you know, they were responsible, they had their local clubs they belonged to, they had a really deeply integrated life. And we've lost a little bit of that in San Francisco. And, you know, you have a picture in front of you right there, and I see, for example, Cyril Magnin. He's another example of somebody who, of course, had a big company, um, but also had a tremendous civic interest. And another person who's also no longer with us, like my grandfather and like Cyril Magnin, is Warren Hellman. Yeah. You know, and he, again, had a deeply integrated life where he had many things. And I think that this is a big message, that we can't really silo ourselves. And, you know, that's very much what CEOs do. They focus just on their shareholders. Yeah. But you can't. You have to focus on your stakeholders so this podcast is really in three parts. Benioff had a few things on his mind about Salesforce, its values-driven culture in San Francisco. It's like a mini TED Talk at the beginning of the podcast that really sets up the second part about his grandfather, Marvin Lewis, and Lewis's influence on Salesforce. And we ended with a lightning round coming from several Chronicle archive finds. We talk about the very first Salesforce classified ad that ran when the company was brand new in 1999. Benioff's father, Russell, sold a candlestick park coat. It had a heater and radio inside. We talk about that. This is an informative, very fun, very SF interview. Trailblazer is in bookstores now, and my article about Benioff and Lewis is on sfchronicle.com. Please subscribe. We're your concierge for culture in the Bay Area. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is The Big Event. Mark Benioff, welcome to The Big Event. Happy birthday to you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on The Big Event. Yeah, and uh, congratulations on the publication of Trailblazer. Well, thank you. I'm really excited about it. Yeah. Um, 
Trailblazer, the name, I've seen it. Uh, first, I saw it on a sweatshirt. I coached basketball. This parent kept showing up with the Trailblazer sweatshirt. And then I saw it walking yeah. <laughs> up and down um, yep. Mission Street, and I sure. biked down Howard to work. Then Dreamforce came, and I saw it yeah. everywhere. But I didn't know the definition until I read your new book. All right, um, great. And I was hoping we could start there. Uh, came from one of your employees, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. And you know what? I, I'd love to dive into that before. But before I do, I'd love to make a few points with you. Yeah, yeah, you can do that. And, you know, the look, I, I think that... You know, the reason that we're sitting here and the reason that I very much wrote this book is, you know, capitalism as we know it is dead. Uh, We have to move towards a new capitalism, uh, a more sustainable, a more equitable, a more fair form of capitalism. And here's what I mean by a new capitalism. It's a system that prioritizes stakeholders, not just shareholders. And I'll give you an example that you already know because you follow us so closely. My company, Salesforce, is the largest employer here in our city in San Francisco. And we've invested more than $67 million in the San Francisco and Oakland public schools. And recently, I was opening a new playground uh, at uh, Presidio Middle School here in, in the city. And... You know, we, we, we built it because I adopted the public school, something I feel like everyone should do, adopt a public school, so mm-hmm. important today. And we're opening the playground, and I'm standing there, and I'm looking down at the kids. And they're looking at me, and I'm going, wow, these are my, these are my stakeholders. And with their big smiles and their big open eyes... I said to myself, you know what, these are absolutely as important as my shareholders. Yeah. That this is how I run my company. And when I walk from here down to my office, you know, in our city with this terrible homeless crisis that we're going through, and those homeless people are my stakeholders as well. I'm looking in their eyes and their hearts when I'm walking to the office. And I feel that that I'm here for them. And it's why I also campaigned and you followed it for Proposition C now about yeah, a year my, ago. my good friend Heather Knight. Uh, Heather did a beautiful <laughs> job with us. Yeah. And, um, and Kevin, you Fagan, and to raise taxes, you know, on my company, on Salesforce, and the other 49 richest companies in my city, companies like Google and Facebook and, and Twitter, you know, and Square and others, uh, to address the homeless crisis that we're all living inside. And so to me, this new capitalism means my stakeholders are my customers. They're my employees. They're the school children. They're the homeless. They're everyone in our community. And yes, they're also our shareholders, our investors. So this is how I'm looking at things very clearly, that every company and every individual has to decide what's most important to them, especially people like me, CEOs. And at Salesforce, our highest value is trust. We talk about that in the book quite extensively Mm -hmm. with all of our stakeholders. And we've built that value into the company. That's our 111 model that we came up with now over 20 years ago. 
Um, this is not some new narrative that we just came up with. No, We've I, been I, preaching this. I looked at the first Chronicle decades. article, 2005, and yeah. you're talking about philanthropy. It's, it's a story about philanthropy, yeah. not about Salesforce. Right. That's exactly, well, that's because this is very much baked into our DNA. And, you know, that's also what happens when you view your responsibility to stakeholders and not shareholders, that your values are bigger than just creating shareholder value. And at that point, your customer is not a product. Uh, your customer is a stakeholder. Your employee isn't a cog in the wheel. They're a stakeholder. Students aren't people that you're driving by and homeless aren't people you're walking by. They're stakeholders. And those values create value, and when that happens, business can be the greatest platform for change. And Salesforce is living proof that this new capitalism can thrive, and everyone can benefit. And we don't have to choose between doing well and doing good. And that's um, not mutually exclusive, the, these two concepts. This is what I so strongly believe way back you know, when we started the company in 1999, and it's why I wrote this book. A trailblazer. Yeah. And to us, a trailblazer is someone who is a pioneering visionary, a prophet, someone who can see through um, the smoke, through the clouds, if you will, and somebody who's able to really find that clarity and create that future. And we see these people everywhere. And we're trying to empower them and enable them and let them come forward. And again, that's what this book is all about. The name, the name grew on you, didn't it? Initially, when you first heard it, your reaction was different than, than later on. That's exactly right. When I first heard the name, it wasn't clear to me that this was part of our uh, lexicon in our company. Uh -huh. uh, Trailblazer, to me, was um, a, a word that I had heard not used in this corporate context. I just wasn't ready for it. And then... You know, like all things, I was just listening deeply, paying attention to what, just like I said, what all my stakeholders thought. And they were really, you know, coming back saying, yes, this is this describes who we are. And ultimately, that's why we adopted it. I Something that struck me going through it, and I, I think I, I should have had a separate post-it for it. Um, I have little marks in the book here. There's a lot of times where you say that you're wrong, um, where you're going down one path and somebody corrects you, or your stakeholders, your, your employees, somebody gets through to you. How important has that been to your business, knowing when you're wrong and not just when you're right? Well, I guess the good thing about writing the book, I realize I'm wrong all the time. <laughs> and mostly, you know, you're, you're listening. You're listening to yourself, you know. Sometimes I am right, I guess. And I'm also listening to others. And that's that's the that that's that that's the two parts of life. You know, you, you have your internal experience, you're listening to what you want, your that's your meditation, your mindfulness, and then you're listening to others, you know, their your experience and reaction with them. And it's that synthesis or that perfect harmony between the two that give you truth and clarity for your for your future. I have to admit, um, I'm a pop culture critic. I, I uh, you know, watch all the Star Wars movies. When I picked up this book, I'm like, is this going to be written for executives? Am I going to be able to connect with this? And I, I saw a lot of things in here that I felt like could help me as a reporter. You didn't write this for executives or the next Mark Benioff. This book is, is for a much wider group than that. Well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, most people realize we have the 
tallest office building west of the Mississippi, you know, Salesforce Tower right here in San Francisco. But just a block away is one of the most dire homeless situations on the planet. Yeah. You know, we have over 7,000 people, men, women, kids, vets, in San Francisco are homeless. And it's our responsibility to take care of them. And that's why we advocated for Prop C, which takes 1% of our revenue and the revenue of our top employers in San Francisco and dedicates it to fixing this horrible homeless crisis. Um, in fact, the meeting that I had just before this interview was the person who's leading this essentially same effort in the South Bay. It, this, is a, this is something that's very serious and that we need to be really um, all focused on. Uh, everybody needs to be doing uh, something. And, you know, that's also, you know, why we are... Um, I would say, feeling so deeply this, this responsibility. It's why we've advocated so much for Prop C. It's why um, we're willing to give up 1% of our revenue and the revenue of the top employers in San Francisco because we need to raise $300 million a year to fix it. Um, that was just validated in the meeting that I just had. This is a very big problem. Actually, in the South Bay, they have more money than we do because they passed... Um, a proposition now quite a few years ago that's raised almost a billion dollars for them. So, you know, in business school, you're taught to oppose any tax on business. Everybody knows that's what CEOs are told to do. But the reality is that in today's world, especially in San Francisco, but really everywhere, and, you know, one good example is in the South Bay, Cisco, and uh, another, you know, great CEO, uh, Chuck Robbins, he's one of the key reasons why this has been so successful. And, you know, large businesses need to pay higher taxes and do more to address the problems that we're facing in our community. It's something that we're compelled to do because the homeless are our key stakeholders, just like our customers, our employees, and our children are our stakeholders. Well, I, I wanted to talk to you about another trailblazer, uh, Marvin Lewis, your your grandfather. I'm gonna I'm gonna quote from your own book, if that's all right. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, My father's influence on Salesforce was foundational but it was mostly quiet, pragmatic, and compassionate, much like the man himself. Grandpa's contribution, on the other hand, was loud, ambitious, spiritual, and altogether impossible to ignore. Um, it's interesting that when Prop C was happening, and I'm following it extra closely, I'm good friends with Heather Knight, and, and right around that time, I'm doing a couple searches, and I start learning more and more about your grandfather. I'd known about the monorail. I dig around in our archive. Mm -hmm. I didn't know yeah. what a homeless advocate. Most people didn't realize that Bart was going to be a monorail, not a yeah. bi-rail, right? Yeah. It was going to be one monorail like Disneyland. Yeah. And imagine that on both bridges and going up and down the highways on all nine counties <laughs> and connecting the whole Bay Area as a Bay Area rapid transit system. And this is what was designed in the 50s, was going to be a kind of a amazing, magical Disneyland-type experience. Uh-huh. And uh, he almost got, you know, that to happen, but it did turn into by rails and it, uh, because of some political issues, became six counties and, instead of nine. Yeah, and, and I found the 1946 and 1949 articles, including the 1949 article, had a big map with monorail, it wasn't called BART yet, going from San Jose up to Santa Rosa, and I could have used it today, going down Geary. 
Um, That's so right. it was very ambitious. Yeah, and I, fa- I have a copy of the Chronicle cover because he saved it. And, um, you know, there, the, the main station was where City Hall is. And there were these big monorails pulling into this kind of very futuristic <laughs> It looks like a flying saucer. It looked yeah. like kind of like a flying saucer. Yeah. And it would have been a very different Bay Area and a very different San Francisco. But good for him that he got, I would say, 60% of it through. Well, well, many years after that, um, he was already in your life, uh, of course, from when you were born. But he, he came into your life even closer. You, you write in the book that it was a parade of two going through San Francisco, could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, uh, how you got closer to him and what his influence was, even to this day? Well, I think for me, that was very much an example of what local leadership was. He, of course, had his career. He was a trial lawyer. He had an unusual focus. It was on psychic injury. <laughs> you know, his most famous case was the streetcar named Desire. Uh-huh. Um, I won't go through all the details, but let's just say that he had a lot of unusual cases like that and wrote textbooks on that and, and so forth. Um, but I'll tell you the thing that was interesting about him is that when you look at somebody like that, and it wasn't just him, that a local leader was somebody who had their career, but also had their civic interests, their spiritual interests. You know, they were responsible. They had their local clubs they belonged to. They had a really deeply integrated life. And we've lost a little bit of that in San Francisco. And, you know, you have a picture in front of you right there, and I see, for example, Cyril Magnin. You know, on the, this was uh, supposed to be a surprise. Oh, all right. Well, I, you know, <laughs> Cyril Magnin. Next time you'll have to keep the picture covered. Yeah. But I see Cyril Magnin. But he's another example of somebody who, of course, had a big company, um, but also had a tremendous civic interest. And another person who's also no longer with us, like my grandfather and like Cyril Magnin, is Warren Hellman. Yeah. You know, and he, again, had a deeply integrated life where he had many things. And I think that. This is a big message that we can't really silo ourselves, And, you know, that's very much what CEOs do. They focus just on their shareholders. Yeah. But you can't. You have to focus on your stakeholders. And this is why I wrote the book Trailblazer, so that I could really give you the stories that help illuminate what that integrated leadership style looks like. You... Um you mentioned homelessness in the book, and I, I read an article where he, your, your grandfather made a three-minute movie based on the conditions in Skid Road, tried to give it to the, to the mayor, and the mayor initially wouldn't see it. I found the follow-up article to that because I tweeted this to you once, um, where he somehow got it in and showed the entire uh, board, and, and they got to see these conditions in Skid Row, which we don't call it that anymore. It's, it's actually where Moscone Center is now. Um, and homelessness, you're walking through the streets with him. Did you have discussions about that? I, I just see the parallels between this action going on in the 40s and 50s and what's going on now with Prop C seems so connected between you and him, and I'm wondering if he talked to you about that. Well, homelessness was always an issue in San Francisco. Yeah. And it's just today, it's just out of control. But, you know, when he was a supervisor, which was, you know, for more than a decade, it was a major issue in the city as well. And you have have the photos and videos of him in the homeless shelters and advocating on behalf of the homeless. So somehow that's in my psychic memory. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe I'm just replaying uh, some of that back again. Well, 
one more just for you, on your grandfather. Um, something not in the papers, uh, you know, that I maybe I didn't see, just a quality about him that you remember. He died 88? I thought it was 91. 91, but it was yeah. probably when you were in Oracle or before that. Uh, it was while I was in, while I was working at Oracle. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah, he died of Alzheimer's. Yeah. Any any thoughts about him just as a person? Well, I think that he was, you know, a tremendous uh, visionary and a tremendous uh, prophet. I think that you know, there's a plaque down at the Embarcadero Bart Station. You have the the picture. If I could just have it for a second. Yeah. And you know, just that. You know, it says it right at the top. It's a huge piece of granite. It'll be there probably forever. And it says, regional mass transit pioneer Marvin E. Lewis, a determined prophet for whom praises often went unsung, but whose crusading spirit basically kept the vision of the Bay Area Rapid Transit alive. Yeah. He ended up getting the first billion-dollar bond from the federal government for uh, the funding and, and made it happen. And that's very much how I remember him in that event that you're kind of memorializing with the photo. I remember it very well. I think I'm sta- you, you sitting see, right there. You actually. see yourself sitting there. I'm definitely sitting there, and I remember it very well. And I remember him standing up at the microphone, and the first things he said was, I'm so happy to be here, and it's nice to be able to, you know, be able to smell the roses. Yeah. You know, and I think what he meant was this was very much a success. The trains were going you know, not just through San Francisco, but, you know, he was on that first train that went under the bay through the tunnel. Uh-huh. And uh, that was a very um, emotional moment for him. They handed him ticket, you know, number one. And then, of course, uh, many of his partners, uh, Adrian Falk and other people, Cyril Magnin, who work with him and who believed in him and who made it happen are all sitting there and they're all jammed in the Embarcadero uh, BART station, and yeah. I remember this, uh, you know, very, very clearly. And you know, this is an example of leadership yeah. for me. And we we want more of this in San Francisco, you know, don't we? We need more people who are willing to take the responsibility of basic services like transportation. And this is something that he these business people here they are. These are the CEOs of the time. Yeah, you know, some of the biggest companies in the city are sitting there, and they're saying, yeah, we're we're getting behind a vision for transportation. We're getting a vision for schools. We're getting a vision for the homeless. And we need more of that. And we don't want that siloed thinking that it's only about the shareholder. We want them, we want everyone thinking like they did. Hey, we have a lot of stakeholders. They thought that way. These are themes in Trailblazer. I mean, all this over is, it. This is really what the book is all about. Yeah. Which is, And I have a, a mentor in a, uh, who was lived in San Francisco in... The early 70s, went to UC Berkeley. Klaus Schwab, who runs the World Economic Forum. Mm-hmm. Most people have heard the conference he runs called Davos, which happens every January. It's the 5,000 top decision sure. makers in the world all kind of uh, uh, congregate in this small Switzerland town. And he said it best. He said CEOs, and again, this is way back in uh, you know the uh, 1972, you know, the times, you know, when... Uh, we heard uh, uh, a lot of the amazing music that's coming out of the 60s, Neil Young, The Summer of Love. And the, he was saying, hey, we need to start thinking about stakeholders, not just shareholders. Yeah. And that's what they're saying, too, by their very presence and, and their actions. So I think enough of us can pivot our thinking 
to that. And, you know, it reminds me of a time when a couple of my senior female executives came to me and, uh, you know, they were in a room very much like we were in here. And they said, you know, we don't get paid the same as your male executives. <laughs> and I said, I know that cannot be true because yeah, another I know time what your salaries are. Book that I was talking about right. where you were wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then when we actually looked at the analytics, in fact, you know, we were paying women less than men. And most companies do. In fact, it'll probably take more than 100 years of working on this, according to the World Economic Forum, that men and women will be paid equally for equal work. So we adjusted our pay scales. And then as we buy companies, it just shocks me that just about every single company that we have acquired, and there's been 50 or 60 of them, mm -hmm. pay women less than men. And when you look at it, whether it's a, a base, bonus, equity, how they're hired, initial compensation, there is, you know, incredible inequalities. And these, you know, female executives, you know, they said the females in our company weren't being paid in the same as their male counterparts. And I just did not believe them. But we looked at the numbers, we found it to be true. And I admitted that as a CEO, my first thought was, wow, this is going to cost me a lot of money. Yeah. You know, but, um, and it did. There's no doubt about it. And in stages, as you mentioned, you 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 made a, a fix and then absorbed some companies. It gives and, us the ability to say yeah. that we're going to stand for gender equality in our company, that equality already is one of our core values, that we need equal pay for equal work. And now we do a yearly analysis to make sure we have equal pay. And when we buy a new company, we make sure that pay scales are equal and our female employees are just as much a stakeholder in our company as our male employees. And that's a shift in thinking that mm -hmm. you have to really think about that your female employees are, for example, a key stakeholder in your company. Yeah. And that's, again, a story I tell in the book and why I think this book is so important because I hope that it's going to inspire leaders to look at who their key stakeholders are, not just who their shareholders are. And that can mean, mean a lot of things for a lot of different types of leaders. Well, I, I, uh, we'll, I one more book question at the end, but uh, I have a lightning round. My friend Heather Knight did a lightning round with you, and um, oh, right. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do better that's than the right. Doobie Brothers at Cow Palace. But I just okay, have a few... I do remember the Doobie Brothers at Cow Palace. That actually shocked her. But yeah, that was, my father. That was the first concert my father uh, <laughs> took me to. So I remember it very clearly. Mine was Van Halen at the Cow Palace. Right, so Cow Palace go. is good. A uh, couple things I found in the archive. Your birth notice, their first child, a son named Mark Russell, with a K, yes. was born recently to Mr. and Mrs. Yeah. Russell Benioff. Yeah. As a Chronicle representative, That's were, actually were we my legal incorrect? Name with a K. No, because okay, what we'll happened run a is... <laughs> no, the funny thing is, my mother, uh, you know, she, I wish she was here. She's, you know... Probably, pro probably playing bridge right now down the street. Uh -huh. But um, when she named me, she named me, actually, Mark Lewis was my first name. Uh -huh. And then my father, she told my father, and he said, no, well, that's not going to happen. And um, she named me Mark Lewis because she liked Mark because it was similar to Marvin. And she wanted to name me after my grandfather, who was very influential. Yeah. Uh, in her life, and then um, 
my father said, no, it'll be Russell after his name, because <laughs> that's his first name. And um, it was Mark with a K. And then she, after one or two days, she said, oh, no, I'm going to change it to Mark with a C. But she never changed the birth certificate. And so it's still there. And that was the um, um, birth announcement. And then it talks about how my grandparents are... Um, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Marvin Lewis, and also my grandmother is my my father's mother, Helen Benioff, who was also a very influential leader in the city and in her industry. We can talk about that. But we'll, had a we'll, we'll, we'll save that for the next one because I want to do a whole half hour on Helen uh, <laughs> Benioff, who is a 1940s running a bunch of companies. Somebody should do a TV series about her. Um, Anne was the first president of her industry association, female president. And I found on eBay recently a photo of her that was in a newspaper with her bio on the back, all kinds of things I didn't even know. It's now in my my bedroom. But again, that must have been a big, you know, influence to me and why probably I value female leaders so highly, even in my own company, because I had so many amazing female leaders around me growing up, not just my... Both of my grandmothers, my mother, mm-hmm. uh, my and my great grandmother, who's mentioned even in this uh, announcement, who was a major leader as well, right here in the uh, right here in San Francisco, and other people like my even my father's uh, grandmother, Minnie mm-hmm. Harris, who also uh, was living right here in San Francisco. Yeah. So you know, I've got four four or five generations. I can't figure it out of you know San Franciscans. Uh, behind me, who uh, have lots of stories and have had lots of influence on my my leadership and my my life and my desire to be a trailblazer as well. Well, your family history is in the Chronicle. Um, uh, I've seen a lot of it, and I'm sure I'll run into more. Very first mention of Salesforce in the Chronicle I have in my hand, it's a uh, classified ad. Uh, we are assembling a world-class team of experienced and talented software developers to help us revolutionize the way salespeople utilize the internet. This is in mid-late 1999. Um, This is my favorite part. To apply, please reference the corresponding job number and send your resume and cover letter to cooljobs at salesforce.com. Email strongly preferred equal opportunity employer. Um, Couple questions here. How big was the company when this was placed, did you did you write it or come in the Chronicle? I mean, I'm wondering, 99, and and my follow-up will be, is Cool Jobs at Salesforce.com still active? Can I send well, an email there now? Well, I think you should now? try it. <laughs> um, and the other thing is this phone number, this fax number is actually my personal fax number. <laughs> so, you know, you have to remember what happened was that I was living on Telegraph Hill. Yeah. Um, I had this really cool house at uh, on Telegraph Hill Boulevard where some of the assistants to Diego Rivera were living when they painted those murals in, oh, yeah. in Telegraph Hill. Um, uh, it was like the first structure, one of their the first. It's very small little house up there, and then I'm getting ready to start this company. I have this idea. I've met these uh, three really interesting. Um, uh, consultants who became my co-founders and I rented the apartment next to me um, at uh, um, uh, uh, on Telegraph Hill and set up shop 
and uh, that basically was our infrastructure. In fact, our our local area network, we had to string a cable basically taking the network in my house uh-huh. uh, over a tree <laughs> and into the apartment, and uh, that was the beginning of our... Uh, our first network and our first data center was in the you know in my bedroom closet. So we've we've come a little bit from there, but that was March eighth of nineteen ninety nine when we started the company. And I'm hoping you hand delivered this to the Chronicle and uh, maybe By had the an way, assistant. I think it's accurate. It said business besides incredible pre IPO stock options and the challenge and the excitement of a promise promising young startup. We're going to re- reward you with generous. Incentives, compensation, benefits, an awesome work environment, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to change the way uh, salespeople use the Internet. Well, I guess a lot of those things actually were true. Yeah, whoever answered that ad's probably really happy right now. Um, second to last one, your father, uh, Russell Benioff, who we haven't talked about, I found this just looking for something else once. Uh, clothier, uh, you write in the book about uh He's got the station wagon, and he's going from store to store. A little earlier than that, 1964, he created in the Chronicle the Candlestick Park Coat. It's a coat. This is very Benioff. It's an innovative coat with a little transistor radio and a heater that's uh, like a hand warmer. Right. And a really beautiful coat. I remember coat. when you found this a few years ago, and you sent it to me, and you were like, what is this about? And I was like... Whoa! Is this is this family lore? Do you have you know, one of these coats in in the closet? I sent it to my mom when you sent that to me, and I'm like, you know, I don't remember this. And my father was very innovative and in making um, products, and was a progressive manager in his family business, uh, which was the Benioff Department Store uh-huh. downtown San Francisco. His father also was an entrepreneur. His mother was an entrepreneur. And then he got into a major disagreement with his family and ended up leaving the business and joining a business in the South Bay, which was Stewart's Apparel, uh, and uh, was working with someone and then eventually uh, took over that business. And then someone has taken over that business uh, since uh, uh, since he passed. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, he was... Uh, he was very committed to his industry and uh, and always kind of staying ahead of the curve. I remember growing up, he was always going to the major uh, retail shows and traveling and making sure he was staying current with all the trends. Nice. Well, I, last one. Um, I've brought your high school yearbook in, and uh, my, my father. The first time I first time I heard your name was from my father, who was a math teacher at Burlingame High. And, I mean, the legend was already growing because I think you sold one of his colleagues a computer when you were still in high school. You had a company already. And we would hear Benioff, like, oh, he fixed the computer, and and you were kind of hanging out, I think, near the math department. This is all lore among my dad and his best friends who Mike McCord, Tom Willard, and Walt Saito. I would compare them kind of like the Warriors dynasty. You know, they were like the Steph Curry Thompson, Draymond, and, yeah. and of math departments. Right. They were spending a lot of time with me after uh, school, getting my math uh, skills up to up to snuff. Yeah. So I wanted to first of all, uh, you mentioned it in the book, so I figure it's fair game. If you if you'd read your senior quote, 
And if you just have a yeah. bur- if you have a Burlingame well, high, Einstein actually keeps following me. It's not only the name of Salesforce's artificial intelligence <laughs> technology, but it's yeah in my high school yearbook. It's very it on brand in 1982. Great spirits have always encountered violent opposition from mediocre minds, and while everyone else seems to have long paragraphs that they've written about all their friends and <laughs> insights that have occurred, you know, that's all I wrote for some reason. Yeah. And uh, it's, I have a lot of white space. Uh, Next to my uh, picture, no. But I remember a, a lot of this as if it was yesterday, actually. Yeah. Do you have a... Uh, I, I think you mentioned in the book you convinced one of your teachers to put an Einstein poster on the wall that was probably still there when well, I was going. No, it was going. one of the teachers you just mentioned. It, yeah. was the math, it was the major math room had that quote and a picture of Einstein there. And, you know, the cool thing is I recently kind of remembered a lot of this because... You can see right here on the cover of this 1982 Burlingame High School yearbook, it says Panther Tracks because it was the Burlingame High School Panthers. Uh-huh. But the cool thing for something we just did was when we were on the playground, we just put in this amazing new playground at Presidio Middle School. I hope you get a chance to go by and check it out. You'll notice going down the stairs is their mascot, and we had a huge black panther uh-huh. basically <laughs> made because that's their ma- mascot also. And so I was thinking to myself, wow, I just can't escape the, the Black Panthers. Here it is, again, bam. Well, in summation, uh, Trailblazer is the book. Uh, by the time you're listening to this, you can go out and buy it. Uh, and uh, congratulations on that. Well, thank you so much. It's great to have you here. And um, thanks for taking the time to talk about Trailblazer. Yeah, no problem. And, and go Panthers. Go Panthers. <laughs> You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to my guest, Mark Benioff. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producer is King Kaufman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album, Community. Read our columns and subscribe to the Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S.